electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, is that it for the rally? That is the question after stocks rose 5% in just two days, only to close the week out with a big old dud. So, what now with some key inflation data and earnings looming? We debate that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Jason Snipe, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova. Let's check the markets as we always do. It's just past 12 noon in the east. We're right across the board, as John Fort was just saying. I'm focused on the Nasdaq again. I mean, it's down nearly 1%, 100 points to the downside. It's now negative, Joe, for October. The Nasdaq's at a two-year low. So we asked the question at the very top, is that it for the rally? Well, I can tell you one thing. I mean, if the Nasdaq continues to be in trouble, yeah, it is, that is it for the rally. Okay, so two thoughts on that. First of all, uh, in terms of technology's relative underperformance to the S&P, it's nearly 7% right now. It hasn't been that wide in the last 20 years. So the significance of the technology decline can't be dismissed. In terms of it, is the rally over, I think the problem now is that you run out of time. You run out of time. As you bump up against the inflation report on Thursday, you bump up against retail sales and you bump up against the beginning of the earnings season. So it's it's going to be a difficult period to navigate through over the coming three weeks. Mm-hmm. I've talked about that at length on the show the last several weeks. If you have a capital need, if you have a capital need in the next three to six months. Well, there might be some action that you need to take in the market. If you don't have a capital need in the next three to six months, you want to ultimately be able to take advantage, you want to be able to take advantage yeah. of the potential decline you're going to see. see. My, my thought as you're saying that is then the rally was always stunted by time. You knew you were going to get CPI. You knew you were going to get retail sales. You knew you were going to get earnings. So then what was the rally about to begin with if you knew that was all going to happen? The, the rally was, was predicated on the possibility, the possibility that you had a peak for the U.S. dollar we haven't broken that correlation, Scott. That correlation's still there. Where the U.S. dollar goes is where the equity market is going to go. Mm. Um, unfortunately, you had a lift in the U.S. dollar this morning. I think for the first time in a while, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is directly impacting the capital markets. That's why you had the rise uh, in the U.S. dollar. And you've got the bond market that's closed today. But we can't break away from the macro, right? The macro is, is really dictating where the equity market is going to be priced in the interim. Bryn, uh, so we talk about the NASDAQ. I got Microsoft at a new 52-week low today. I've got Alphabet's price target cut at Morgan Stanley. Meta, which you own, price target gets cut there as well to 205 from 225. Again, this notion that if, if the NASDAQ's going to remain in trouble, then, yeah, the rally's done. I mean, what's going to carry it here if you've got worries about the economy? You're going to pile into cyclical stocks? The Nasdaq and the S&P will definitely continue to have a headwind as long as the Nasdaq is under pressure. I think it's important to remember, as of the beginning of this year, as of 1231, 2021, the 10-year 
backward-looking return for the NASDAQ was almost 20% per year. Right now, as of 9.30, it's 13% per year still, though, for the last 10 years. And so as we know, markets don't go back to their averages. They typically overshoot. And so if the average return for the NASDAQ's been around 11%, I still feel like there's more multiple compression to go because those are the stocks that over-earned in a zero-rate environment in QE 1, 2, 3, and 4, and you just have a different playbook today. And so I think the investors that are expecting this like V-shape and you know Microsoft's gonna bounce off are gonna be disappointed because in a bear market, it's time and patience. And the patience part of it is where most people make the mistake and they end up saying, I just can't stand this anymore. And so I don't think we're at that point yet, but I do think we're getting there. And this week is gonna be I think really volatile with all of the different data points coming out. All right, let's see if Farmer Jim's patience, as you say, <laughs> have been tested. Let's find <laughs> out. I feel like I haven't talked to Farmer Jim in, in a while. I'm looking at Jonathan Krinsky's note today. 3,400 looks more likely before month's end, he says. We don't think this market will have a V-shaped rally off its 200-day moving average like it did in 18. While it may have felt that way after Monday, Tuesday, our sense is we break lower this week and head towards the 3,400 level later this month. Farmer Jim. Uh, well, certainly my patience has been tested this whole year um, and continues to be tested, but it's, it's not going to break. Um, look, Jonathan Krinsky has been very right all year, uh, and the technicals matter until the fundamentals uh, override them. And right now, there's just no sign that fundamentals will override them. We'll see what inflation does this week. We'll see what earnings start to come in. There's no way at this point for anyone like me to make a prediction that the CPI will be softer than expectations, because you know what? For 18 of the last 19 months, it's come in hotter than expectations. So I don't want to play that game. But I will say this to your original question and how Brent answered it. These rallies and crashes are very short and very sharp. They're two days, three days at the most. And I think what's going on, and this is what Bryn was alluding to, is there is a leadership change going on that's going to last going into the years coming forward. Uh, you can look at it in terms of relative multiples. Tech is still much more expensive than the overall market. Um, our Fred Ed Yardeni notes that you take two multiple turns off of the multiple when you exclude the top eight stocks. Mm -hmm. You know what they are. They're Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, etc. But when you look at the what you referred to as more cyclical, maybe I'll call them value stocks, not only are the multiples lower, but there is reason once we get to next year, I'm not talking about the next two days or the next two weeks, but once we get past the next two months, there is reason to expect those earnings to grow in 2023 at a rate higher than tech. So this transition from growth to value is painful, Scott, because people come back in. When the market rallies last week, they say, okay, well, how badly can I get hurt in Apple or Amazon? Apple's off what, 20% in a month? You can get badly hurt. The leadership change is a transition and it's painful along the way. But did I hear you suggest, <clears throat> you didn't say these exact words, but I'm gonna assume that you did. Are you suggesting that the fundamentals are better for the market than the technicals would suggest they are? Did you just say that basically? You know what, I'm soft saying it. <clears throat> Excuse me as I clear my throat, nothing in that throat clearing to be uh, implied. I'm soft saying it. I, we can't, I can't say that until we see a more benign inflation report. I will say this about the fundamentals though. Look at where the Atlanta Fed GDP number is, 2.9% for last quarter. Look at the labor market, look at the ISM surveys that are still expansionary. My point on this is not that I'm ignorant of what the Fed's going to do. 
It's that there is economic growth going on right now. Yes, they're going to curtail that. But boy, this is a pretty strong economy that nobody wants to give credit to. Yeah. So Jason Snipe, you know, Paul Tudor Jones was on the network this, this morning. Um, you know, he thinks there's going to be a recession. Right. But at some point, the Fed's going to after they put you there, they're going to reverse course and and try and get you out of it uh, by cutting rates. And then at that point, risk assets are going to rally. But that point doesn't seem like it's anywhere in the very near future, does it? I would agree with that, Scott, you know, because if, if I've looked at last week, right, we had a major bounce, you know, again, coming off a really rough September on Monday and Tuesday, got some some softish jolt numbers, you know, early last week. And then we get a payroll number um, on Friday that was stronger than expected. And it's to Jimmy's point the you know, Main Street is stronger than we all think. I mean, unemployment rate now is down at three and a half percent, 50 year lows. We're coming into this week. PPI, CPI, retail sales, a lot of macro data. And Joe said it earlier, you know, the macro is really the story of the market, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's all about the macro. We talk about it every day, it seems like. Um, but to your point earlier about what Paul mentioned, I agree. I think, I think that it's going to take some time, just like accommodative policy takes about 18 months to hit the system. Tightening takes a while as well, you know, and we are seeing small breaks here and there. But, you know, this dual mandate, inflation, you know, and the labor market, the labor market is still strong. We're going to have to see some breakdown there, you know, for them to continue, potentially pause, you know, and, and I don't see that at any time in the near future. I mean, Charlie Evans, when asked today in his interview with Steve Leisman, said it takes 12 to 18 months for the rate hikes to have an impact. It goes to the central question of what the Fed is doing um, and why they're doing it and what they may continue to do. And that brings me to Steve Leisman himself who joins us now. He did that interview a few minutes ago. Uh, it was interesting. He, I mean, he made the point that we still have supply chain issues and there's too much demand given the supply chain issues. So they have to hit demand to deal with the supply chain issues. But the whole thing goes back to they can't really control the supply chain issues. So what are we doing in the first place? Uh, what they can do, uh, Scott, that's, that's the problem. They do not control any of the supply levers of the economy. They control demand levers to an extent. And what they're trying to do is uh, hope that the supply chain problems work themselves out. Charlie was actually uh, optimistic on this score, said he saw some uh, uh, improvement in the uh, chip supply or chip deficit problem that was out there that had curtailed uh, automobile production, had seen some of the other issues start to resolve themselves, uh, but still demand, he said, was too hot relative to the available supply. And the Fed is trying to bring demand down uh, to where supply uh, can meet it and not cause inflation. So, you know, you you had this conversation with him, um, worried about, well, what happens if you guys break something uh, along the way? And he's obviously mindful of, of that, as, as they all are. Um, but he clearly doesn't see us at that inflection point, I guess you could call it, at this moment. Nothing extraordinary, I think, was yeah. the word that he used. Yeah, and I don't know that, I mean, they have obviously a lot of information there from the New York Fed desk, which monitors markets pretty closely. Um, uh, and, and, and we have access to some of that information as well by just calling some of the people who are doing that trading, Scott. And we're hearing, you know, spotty issues of liquidity, uh, at least in the United States. Um, 
Uh, like I think we reported last week, talked to a bunch of guys and they said if 10 is the is the worst earthquake in the market you can imagine, well, they pegged it around a six. Um, depends on the day. There's a lot of volatility out there and that's associated with a lot of uncertainty um, and a lot of uh, communications from the Federal Reserve. So uh, uh, it does not seem to them like it's a reason to stop hiking rates because they have to focus on inflation. And they also say they have these tools to deal with financial instability, which is what they call macro prudential regulation, which I guess means, uh, you know, wagging their fingers at the banks or worse to uh, get out of it. And I guess one of the appropriate criticisms here, Scott, is that the Fed is watching the banking system and watching markets themselves, but not necessarily the shadow banking system for which they and I don't think anybody actually has responsibility. And if there is a potential problem, you know, that's the place you might worry it comes from. I think the what the Fed is watching, Steve, is is on many levels, the most critical debate that and conversation that we could have at, at the current time. And I go back to the comment that Kashkari made last week where he said, quote, there's almost no evidence that inflation has peaked. And we had a conversation, you and me, on this program, along with the panel, as to what exactly is Mr. Kashkari looking at. And I think you said, like, I'm not sure exactly what he's looking at to make that broad statement like that, to which I posed him that very question on Twitter. How, what exactly is saying that inflation, there's almost no evidence? And, and he came back to me saying that he's focused on underlying inflation, not the headline inflation. So my question then to you is, isn't there some evidence out there that underlying inflation uh, has, in fact, or at least in some parts of that, has peaked? Yeah, Scott, it's a tricky issue. I didn't know, actually, that Kashkari responded to you. Good, good job there, Scott. You're, uh, uh, at heart, you're a reporter, even though you anchor the show. So uh, uh, hats off to you on that. But but listen, here's the thing. Um, what the Fed wants to do, and I'm only speaking about what what I how I think they're making policy here, is they needed to show up in the numbers, Scott. Uh, th there's anecdotal evidence, and I think the Fed does get some of that, but it's got to show up in the numbers. And the core PCE rate continued to go up. They're still seeing it in services. They're still seeing a tight job market. And there's both a reality and a data artifact, I guess, of how those rents pour into the CPI number. And that's going to doom the CPI to higher inflation for like six months to come uh, or no relief, at least from 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 lower rents for at least six months. So they have to they have to really play that game, even though, Scott, as you say, things could be improving around them. Uh, it's not enough if it's not showing up in the data. And I think, you know, there's a really good question. Are we worried about inflation? I was having this discussion this morning with a, 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 a big fund, a big money manager this morning. Are we worried about inflation or are we only worried about the idea that the Fed's going to make a mistake with inflation? And I think, you know, on, on depends on the day, but a, a lot of the concern out there is not that the Fed's going to not that we're going to have an inflation problem, because I think people believe that's going to come down. I think the bigger worry is the Fed's going to make a mistake. And just for the reasons you're talking about, it's going to be either too late or looking at the wrong things. Well, to make a mistake, because even Evans <clears throat> admits to you today, it takes 12 to 18 months for the hikes to have an impact on what they want to impact. Yeah. Right. And we've only been six months. <clears throat> the first rate right. hike was but, in March. But it's it's it's. it's but it's, it's worth pointing out, Scott, of, of sort of why he thinks they need to get to this place. 
He said four and a half to four and three quarters percent is where they want to get to. And he says that would result in a real funds rate, depending upon what underlying inflation you use, but an inflation adjusted funds rate of about two percent. And he said that is about average for a Fed tightening cycle. So he thinks there needs to be a positive rate in any event and then a restrictive rate on top of that. And he wants two points total of a real rate in there. And he thinks that's the rate that will bring down inflation. So it's sort of a theoretical construct. And I guess they'll, they're going to uh, tweak this thing as they go. But let me tell you, Scott, it has been a long time since I've seen this kind of unanimity in, in, in Fed officials. We get to talk to a lot of them. They're making speeches and stuff. And, and the difference between the, the, the dovish and the most hawkish member is very, very slight right now. They all seem to be headed to this 4.5% range, and they're all on board with this. Yeah. For the record, Kashkari did not respond to my follow-up, which I wasn't happy about. Maybe he will now. I don't know. Oh, I thought he did. <laughs> not my follow-up. I'll give him no, a call, he Scott. responded to the initial one. He did not respond to the follow-up. Asking oh, him exactly. Oh, okay, he did. Cool. Yes, yeah. So there's still some unfinished cool. business between Scott, the two of us. Joe, Joe has a question for you. Steve, Scott, uh, okay, I just want to make sure we get a chance to talk about European markets in a second, but mm -hmm. go ahead, Joe. Steve, should the market take any comfort in Mr. Evans comparing the environment of now to 2018? Because I got the, I got the pause that time. Yeah, um, I, I think that's that's an interesting comparison he made. Uh, if, if we get off with a 2018 event where the Fed ends up, you know, tweaking in response to that, uh, I, again, I think it would be cheap. Look, if we get off with even a mild recession, I think it's cheap here uh, as well, given the uh, uh, magnitude of what they have to accomplish. I think that's worth thinking about. Um, you know, you just hope the Fed is watching the right stuff. And the trouble with these things that happen with liquidity issues is a lot of times it happens in places you weren't looking almost by definition. You know what? I'm, I'm going to throw something uh, into the mix, which I've just been alerted to by our news desk. And I think we're going to have some actual sound of this in a few minutes. But uh, CNBC Europe did an interview with Jamie Dimon uh, today, or he may have been speaking somewhere where they were uh, over in Europe. And he's talking about uh, the Fed. Uh, they, I'm reading through this whole thing as we speak, they're likely to put us into some kind of recession six to nine months from now uh, is what uh, Jamie Dimon, of course, the, the head of J.P. Morgan, is saying. And then when asked about the market, he says uh, it could be another easy 20 percent. And I think the next 20 percent would be much more painful in the first rates uh, going up another 100 basis points, a lot more painful than the first 100 because people aren't used to it. And, you know, I think negative rates, when all is uh, said and done, will have been a complete failure. So we're going to try and get the sound cut. I'm going to try and play it for you. But Diamond himself is commenting on uh, recession. Um, I think he, Europe is already in a recession, is, is what he said. Uh, and they are likely to push the U.S. Uh, and the world uh, into one as well, speaking, I believe, of, about the Fed. So we'll try and get all that cut. Um, but, but, Joe, why don't you go for Steve? So, <coughs> excuse me, Steve, you know, there, there's a great line in the Hootie and the Blowfish song that says, time, why you punish me, right? And I think the market in 2022 has unfortunately neglected to realize that time is the only solution to all of this. And on Friday, we had a conversation about the Federal Reserve's ability to speed up time. Is, is that something unrealistic from the standpoint of being able to pull forward and deliver 
the, the, the type of, if you want to call it medicine or whatever it is they're administering to combat inflation, and thereafter saying, you know what, it either it works or it doesn't work, and in either scenario, we're going to have to stop. Yeah, uh, boy, that's a really great question, Joe. And let me, let me answer it as follows. First of all, time with the right policy is the solution. If you don't have the right policy, time is your enemy. Um, and I think the, the, Fed, the Fed understands that. The thinking at the Fed, which I've heard from folks like Bullard, um, as well as Evans talked about it this morning, the idea that you pull it forward um, and, and you use the market to tighten financial conditions right now, the hope in this idea, the theory behind it, is that you don't have to do as much later. If you, if you wait and have to further break the back of inflation, it requires tougher medicine than if you take that medicine up front. You want to be careful, you know, kind of imposing these metaphors on monetary policy and on markets. But that's the thinking, is that if you do it and you bring it forward, the, the Fed has not been, uh, I want to say it's since 08, 07 that it's really done uh, as, as much work as it's tried to do in terms of using markets to bring forward rate hikes. And this uh, uh, moment we're in is very extraordinary. You remember uh, uh, Powell did his pivot in November of 2021, and they didn't hike rates until March. Um, and so that was several months ahead where it tried to really pull it forward. And, and we'll see. They're going to have to get to a point where they're comfortable and they're going to have to wait. And whether or not that's too much, uh, I guess that's what the market's debating. On what Jamie Dimon was saying, I think it was it's fascinating because he's right in the following sense. Um, I mean, he's probably right in, in total, but certainly in this sense, which is that where we are right now is not a crazy rate for this economy, or three, 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 three and a half percent, or so, three and a quarter. It's the next hundred that's the restrictive rate. It's the next hundred that is going where uh, a central bank has not gone in a very long time before. Which is why there's such a large lack of belief that if they go to unprecedented territory, that they can manage it well enough to actually yeah. pull it off. Um, let's do this. Steve, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, yeah, go ahead. What you got? Scott, yeah. just really quick on this European thing. We're watching oh, European yes, rates yes, this yes. morning. Uh, they 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 blew out. I know you wanted to talk about I did, this. I did. Thanks for bringing uh, they, that up. They blown out, perhaps on the Bank of England saying, you know, it doubling down on the idea that they do want to stop buying bonds. But you had a 30 basis point rise in the GB uh, in, in, in the uh, the gilt 30, a 22 basis point rise in the uh, in the uh, gilt 10. Uh, German bonds are up as well. And our U.S. bond market is closed. But we had a, the, the futures market for the Fed is open, and we had a pretty good rise. We're now looking at a 472 peak rate for the funds, as I believe that's an increase sympathetically with what's happening over in Europe. Okay. Uh, and as I said, uh, Steve, thank you again. Uh, speaking of uh, that interview that Pleasure. CNBC Europe has done with uh, Jamie Dimon, we're getting that sound that I mentioned to you turned around. We'll take a quick break. We'll do it right on the other side. We'll talk Ford and GM as well. They are among the worst performers in the S&P 500 today. Both downgraded. We'll debate it. It's our call of the day. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. 
Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. back. Uh, as you can see, there are stocks uh, at the lows of the session. I want to play now at least the first soundbite that I mentioned from Jamie Diamond over in Europe with our uh, CNBC uh, Europe reporter there about the stock market, uh, a recession and what might happen. You see early signs of distress. So you saw it. I mean, this again, is fairly typical. You know, markets go down for, you know, people forecast the economy, et cetera. The IPO market closes first. That's kind of happened. High yield closes second and structured credit that's kind of happened for the most part. You know, things can get done, and then it starts to affect other credit. You saw it with the gilt markets here. You see a lack of liquidity in a lot of markets. A lot of uh, intermediaries can't intermediate like we used to because of regulations. It is going to happen. And I think the, uh, the likely place you're going to see more of a crack and maybe a little bit more of a panic is in credit markets. And it might be ETFs. It might be a country. It might be something you don't suspect. If you make a list of all the prior crises, sitting here, we would not have predicted where they came from, though I think you can predict this time that it probably will happen. And so I'd be, if I was out there, I'd be very cautious. If you need money, go raise it. What about stock markets? Where do you see the trough for the S&P 500? Oh, I don't know. You know, it, it, it may have ways to go. I mean, it, it really depends on that soft landing, hard landing thing. And since I don't know the answer to that, it's hard for me to answer that. But it, it, could, it could be another easy 20%. And uh, I, you know, I think like the next 20% will be much more painful than the first. Rates going up another 100 basis points are a lot more painful than the first 100 because people aren't used to it. And, you know, um, and I think negative rates, when all is said and done, will, will be a, have been a complete failure. Okay, so that's Jamie Dimon, again, CNBC Europe, just, just moments ago. Let, let's kick this around. So, Bryn, um, that was basically Dimon going down his, if I, I, I say this, checklist of trouble. Right. Which you typically see in scenarios uh, like the, the one that that we're in. Right. You, you first see stress here, then you see it there and then you ultimately see it, you know, show up in an even bigger decline in the stock market, which he suggests um, could be an easy 20 percent more. He said uh, the quote that stands out to me, if you need money, go raise it is, is what he said. What do you make of that? Well, I think what Joe said in the, on the front of the show is like, understand if you need money in the next three to six months, 
I mean, equities or long duration bonds are not where you want to be. I do see two things that I thought were really interesting where he talks about the credit market. And I still think that if you see something break, it's going to manifest itself most likely in that type of credit market, whether it's a emerging market or something, something of that yoke. And so I still think that long duration treasuries, long duration corporates, high yield are not the place you want to be right now. I think you still want to stay really short because if you do have a break, something does break, equities will just be the easiest thing to sell. And so I think, you know, Jamie always comes out and says it like he sees it. But I do think that between what you and Steve were talking about and Jamie is like we are in these uncharted waters and the Fed really is guessing. They are guessing that their theory is going to work, but no one's been in this environment where the Fed is trying to s slow inflation and tor not torpedo the economy. And I just don't think that's going to happen. So I definitely think the probabilities of a recession get more and more every day, especially as the Fed is trying to reduce inflation, which I don't think they can. I think the type of inflation we have, food, housing, and energy, they can do nothing on those three fronts, especially as it relates to rents. Mm -hmm. Jason Snipe, I mean, this is the man who said, you know, a hurricane was coming, right? And now he, le he leaves you with the thought that maybe it's going to be a, a more significant category number uh, associated with the storm that he suggested months ago was coming. Absolutely. And I think for me, Scott, I think the biggest concern, and I, and I know Joe's mentioned on the show before, is if this policy doesn't work, right? So we're, we're raising rates into a slowing economy, GDP slowing, economy slowing as a whole, and this doesn't work. That, that, that's, that's the biggest concern. And I could see, of course, if, that, if, that does, if it doesn't work, there will be plenty of things that will break. And, you know, I think for me, it's all about how deep and how long um, will this potentially be? And I think, I think the recession, not that it's inevitable, but it's, it's I mean, we're on the two-yard line at this stage. So, I mean, so there, there are many concerns, many have, go ahead. So no, for, uh, your, your point is, is well taken. I mean, you say we're on the two-yard line. Some like, you know, maybe Diamond himself would suggest that the, the ball has tipped the goal line, right? And then it's, 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 it's only a matter of, of when, um, not if. And here's the second soundbite that I uh, referenced earlier about comments about the Fed uh, and the idea of a recession. Let's listen to that. So I think you got to put two things in mind here. Currently, right now, the U.S. economy is actually still doing well. Consumers have money. You know, fiscal stimulus, they still have more than they had before. They're spending 10 percent more than last year, 35 percent more than pre-COVID. Their balance sheets are in great shape. Yes, debt's gone up a little bit, but not nearly to pre-COVID levels. And therefore, even if we go into recession, they're going to be in much better shape than 08 and 09. Companies are in good shape. Credit's very good. Uh, markets are still open, though, rocky and stuff like that. But you, gotta, you, you can't talk about the economy. About We're going to try and recap that uh, and play the rest of it. We do have the rest of that, I'm assuming. And we'll try and get that uh, uh, back to you. But we can at least start kicking that around, Joe, while we technically work on that. You know, I, I go back and I think about what Adam Parker said to you and I on the on overtime a couple of uh, weeks ago. And, and, and in essence, it's OK, so we're going to raise rates to a high enough level to where we have to cut them. Logically, that is inconsistent with trying to find a good solution. And, and I think it falls back 
to exactly what Bryn identified. I think we have to have the courage collectively, both for monetary and fiscal policy, to really say, okay, let's tackle demand destruction, let's normalize rates, but let's also look at the supply challenges. Let's come up with ways to incentivize the logistical challenges that we're facing here as it relates to supply, because there is this significant risk that they are unable to properly and in a timely fashion affect inflation. And you have to, at a certain point, stop because you cannot place the economy, which right now is in a very resilient condition. You can't break that economy. It doesn't make sense to have both inflation and then people losing their jobs. Let's just stop. It's not logical. Jim, Farmer Jim, um, this idea, right, that this this storm is coming and and maybe it's time to look around and evacuate so to speak, if you're able to, which Diamond suggested in the quote that I said, if you need money, go raise it. Those were his exact words. Yeah, I, I think there's a question hanging here, um, you know, and I'm thinking about that next 20 percent down that he's talking about, which would precipitate take your money out now. There's one condition that's missing in this bear market, and we've talked about it, which is a banking system crisis, at least here in the U.S., and I think that this really matters. It seems likely that there's going to be a European banking crisis, right? We had a canary in the coal mine two weeks ago with the Bank of England, and that's still going on. Who knows what's going to happen with Credit Suisse? But I don't think with what the Fed's done over the last 15 years in terms of stress tests and regulations, I don't think the U.S. banking system is in distress or near distress. And it would really strike me that that's what's required to get that next leg down. I'm, I, I'm glad you played those clips of Jamie Dimon. He was very measured. He was balanced on soft landing versus hard landing. But what I didn't hear from him was any sort of concern about the banking system here in the U.S. I think that matters a lot. Well, why Scott. does it have to? I don't understand. Why does it have to go from like zero to a thousand miles an hour? I mean, that that's what happened in 08. Why does this have to reach that magnitude to have a 20 percent decline from here in the stock market? That that doesn't make uh, any bit of, of sense to me. It doesn't have to reach the near end of the world again for the stock market to go down another 20 percent. It just has to come to the realization that a recession is almost inevitable at some point, whether it's three, six, nine or 12 months from now, it's the steepness of one that dictates ultimately perhaps how much the stock market goes down, right? He went down the Scott. checklist. He doesn't have to get to the banking system, uh, get Scott. all messed up. Uh, allow me to disagree. And this, this is something we can absolutely disagree on, okay? But when you get that terrible bear market that goes down 50%, like in the great financial crisis, what's missing is that credit dries up. Solvency becomes a question at companies and at individual levels. And what Jamie Dimon said specifically is that consumers and corporate balance sheets are in great shape. He gave no hint of a credit crunch coming. And that I'm going to you can disagree. That's fine. But I will put to you that in true bear markets where you go down 45, 50 percent, credit dries up and it's just not happening. Uh, I mean, he is looking for the potential of a more of a crack, he says, and maybe a little bit more of a panic uh, happening in credit markets. So he's not looking maybe for Maybe it a, happens. He's not looking for. But again, even if that happens, that doesn't mean bank solvency is the is the next 
logical place to look so fast. I mean, it doesn't have that's to be that way. That's not what I'm saying. Way. What I'm saying is that's a necessary ingredient for the next 20% down is some sort of banking issue here in the U.S. that you just haven't had. It could happen, Scott. It could happen. I'm not saying it can't happen. What I'm saying is that Jamie Dimon's comments give no indication that that's no, on the horizon. My, but, uh, I think what I'm suggesting is if it gets to that point, it's going down a lot more than 20%, Jim. You have my complete agreement. Okay. You have my complete agreement. All right, so let's do this. Um, we're going to have more of Juliana Teitelbaum's exclusive interview with Jamie Dimon. We'll have that tomorrow on CNBC. Uh, and, of course, you'll want to listen to those comments uh, again uh, from somebody who uh, has a propensity for making comments that move markets like he may have done um, this afternoon uh, here. The stocks are at the lows of the day, perhaps uh, in some respect reacting to that. Coming up, oil hitting a five-week high. The energy ETFs you need to watch from here coming up. Plus, we'll show you mystery charts up double digits this year. Shares rallying right now on an upgrade. We reel the name. Halftime is back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Time to load up on oil and gas stocks again. Oil's back as an inflation issue. West Texas crude going from 77 to 92 in two weeks. Joining me to discuss Jan Van Eck, CEO of Van Eck. He manages the Van Eck Oil Services ETF and many other commodity ETFs. Good to see you as always. Your oil services ETF is up 32% this year. It's one of the big, big gainers in ETFs. The global energy sector is rattled uh, by this precarious position in the European energy sector right now, as well as by variable demand in oil. What's your best guess on where oil is going to be going? Uh, well, we think we're in a new era for oil. So the last decade was really tough. We had near-death experiences with oil in 2016. Uh, energy equities got crushed after the kind of post-shale hangover. Uh, and then we had COVID, of course. I think you're looking now, remember we talked about the Fed put right. last decade? I think we've got the OPEC plus put. 80 bucks a barrel. Uh, and I think the markets have not priced that in. So I think we got more to go on the services side. Let me ask you about natural gas. I mean, oil prices are more than doubled this year. I'm looking at nat natural gas swinging from $3 to $10 this year. We're now in the mid $6 range. The Europeans are trying to get themselves off Russian natural gas in a matter of months, even though they've had a dependency that's gone on for years now. How does this end for natural gas? Well, natural gas, I believe, is more affected by the war uh, than, than oil, because I think the oil markets are going to be great next year. Um, but gas has clearly uh, been, been majorly affected in Europe. And so probably has a little bit of downside. But again, we see value in the equities. So uh, even though that gas is now globalized through LNG and everything like that, and, and the world economy is going to be weak, right? We, we're in a very slow global economy. Uh, we still love the equities. Um, commodities have done great this year, but um, especially the energy complex, especially the energy complex. But uh, we're, we're, 
we're, we're liking the equity still. Okay. We're going to have much more on where energy prices and their ETFs are going. Coming up on ETF Edge, Jan's going to weigh in, not just on oil, but he's going to talk about gold and agricultural commodities. He's got major ETFs around them as well. He'll be joined by Fiona Boll, the global head of commodities and real assets at S&P Dow Jones Indices. Also, Chris Hempstead from Mirai Asset Securities. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime returns right after this. You saw their stocks are at the lows of the day as we continue our coverage of Jamie Dimon, that exclusive interview with CNBC's Juliana Tattlebaum. This is his answer. We've figured the technology out, I believe, uh, regarding recession, the Fed and the economy. Listen. So I think you got to put two things in mind here. Currently, right now, the U.S. economy is actually still doing well. Consumers have money. You know, fiscal stimulus, they still have more than they had before. They're spending 10% more than last year, 35% more than pre-COVID. Their balance sheets are in great shape. Yes, debt's gone up a little bit, but not nearly to pre-COVID levels. And therefore, even if we go into recession, they're going to be in much better shape than 08 and 09. Companies are in good shape. Credit's very good. Uh, markets are still open, though, rocky and stuff like that. But you, gotta, you, you can't talk about the economy without talking about the stuff in the future. And this is serious stuff, okay? This is inflation, which obviously is you know, changing the effect of those numbers I just told you about. It's rates going up more than people expected already, and probably a little bit more from here. It's QT, which we've never had before. Uh, so therefore, the unknown effects, and you see it today in bond markets around the world and sovereign markets and people selling U.S. Treasury debt, and it's the war. And these are very, very serious things, which I think are likely to push the U.S. Uh, and you know, the world. I mean, Europe is already in a recession, and they're likely to put U.S. in some kind of recession six, nine months from now. If we do see the U.S. go into recession, how severe do you expect it to be, and how long do you expect it could last? Yeah, well, this is the thing no one ever really knows, right? You do have a strong consumer going into it. Businesses are in pretty good shape, but they were amazingly resilient during COVID. You know, even the ones that, that had no government support and stuff, stuff like that. And I think governments did do a hell of a job getting their thing to recover. So we don't know. I mean, you, you have, now you have to look at the range of outcomes. It can go from, you know, very mild to quite hard. And, and a lot will, you know, rely on what happened to this war. So I think, you know, to guess is hard, be prepared. And, and, and but the one guarantee, which we've been consistent about, is volatile markets. You're going to have volatile markets. You've already seen markets down quite a bit. No IPOs, very little high yield. Bridge loans being hung and stuff like that, which is pretty typical, but it's still been orderly. I think it's possible you're going to see it be disorderly sometime in not not too near future. How do you think the Fed is doing in managing this whole situation? Well, let me give them credit for what they did in COVID. And I hate to second guess people because I think it's easy for everyone to do. In hindsight, you know, they waited too long and did too little, and QT should have started sooner and all that. But they're clearly catching up. They're clearly motivated to catch up. And, you know, from here, we let's all wish them success and keep our fingers crossed that they, that they manage to slow down the economy enough that it doesn't, you know, to cause it. Whatever it is is mild. And it's possible. I wouldn't take that off. I think, the, like I said, the far more serious thing is this war, far more serious than the short-term effect of the economy and things like that. Okay, so that's Jamie Dimon there. Uh, Let's bring in our headliner now, uh, Gregory Branch, Veritas Financial Founder and Managing Partner. Uh, It's good to have you now uh, and bring you in, especially now, given what you've heard, I hope, 
uh, Mr. Diamond suggests, what he calls serious stuff, rates going up more than people thought and more coming, QT unknowns, the war effects could have a possible 20% additional drop in stocks. His advice, be prepared. You heard him just say, and what he said in the prior soundbite, we played, quote, if you need money, raise it. He talked about uh, issues in the, in the, the markets themselves, the credit markets, orderly to this point. Uh, however, it could get, in his words, disorderly in the not-too-distant future. What's your reaction initially to all of that? I think Jamie chooses his words very carefully, and probably rightfully so, Scott. You know, a lot of what he just said, I've been saying for quite some time, and I have the luxury of not uh, as many people listening to me as, as listen to Jamie Dimon. So let me translate a couple of things, because I think that he was probably not as draconian or as weighty as he should have been on a couple of those points. Number one, he talked about a strong consumer, and that has been true, and they have spent more than they did pre-COVID. But at the same time, that has been debt finance, Scott. We had a record 229 million credit line openings in the first quarter. Then we set another record of 233 million in the second quarter. And we were doing that while we were nearing all-time highs on average APR of 17 and change percent. And so the summer of spend was largely debt financed. I think what we're going to see when we look back is that the consumer balance sheet deteriorated fairly significantly in the third and fourth quarters. And I think we're going to hear that from the companies come these earnings reports. Do you share his this, view? Do you share his view that you could get uh, another 20 percent decline in stocks easy um, if, you know, things start to look a little square uh, in certain places um, as it relates to the economy is already talking about some of the issues around the world, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that are having the impact, right? The war, QT, rates going up and, and likely to go up even further. Do you share his view that if you need money, go raise it, quote unquote? I, I share his view and I shared that view, you know, a year and a half ago when money was basically free. Um, you know, Scott, you know that I set my targets uh, based on arithmetic. And so, you know, when I came out and said that I thought uh, the fair value in the S&P uh, 500 was 3,600, that was based on seeing 215 or so of earnings with a 17 times multiple. How low can it go? It can certainly go lower than I can arithmetically determine uh, based on sentiment. And so, you know, I'm sticking with the 3,600 for now because I believe we're going to end the year around that 215, 220. But I'm going to start to look at 2023 very soon. And so we'll hear from the companies, as Jamie suggested, we'll see what, what QT looks like and we'll see what the downward revisions look like. And if I don't see 215, 220 for 2023, then, yeah, I'm going to take it lower. But sentiment, you know, as we've seen in July and, and, and early last week, sentiment can drive things higher or lower than they should be. Joe, what, what do you want to weigh in here? With, with Diamond, because it, I think it's it's had a, 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 an impact, at least initially, on how the market has traded. Um, you're not going to make too broad of a statement regarding that. But the Dow's down 200 now. Um, he's speaking very plainly about issues he, he clearly sees already, right, from hurricane comments many months ago to maybe now being on the doorstep of some more significant types of issues that we're going to have to come to grips with. So I think there is this rally cry, and I appreciate everything that Greg has said. He's been incredibly accurate uh, over, the, over the last 12 months. Um, but I think the rally cry, and I think the rally cry ultimately is going to come from the Treasury market 
is, is going to force the Federal Reserve's hand. They are going to have to pause whether or not they can bring down the inflation or not. If you look at the overall value of, of the S&P 500, we're talking about about a $30.5 trillion overall market cap. Well, the U.S. Treasury market is $23 trillion, and that Treasury market has benefited since 2000 with, in one regard or another, a central bank being the marginal buyer. Who's the marginal buyer for Treasuries right now? If you think about commercial banks, they're pulling back. If you think about foreign buyers, they're pulling back. In the last four weeks, $81 billion has come out of the Treasury market from foreign buyers. And foreign buyers, because of currency fluctuations, they can't mm-hmm. step in and they really can't hedge either. So the Fed's not there. The public sector's not there. You're asking the private sector to be the buyer? The marginal buyer in the Treasury market? It's not going to happen. And, and that recipe is, is going to create an environment when you talk about liquidity, that's the ultimate liquidity challenge. That's when Edgar Denny talks about the bottom vigilantes, and that's why the Federal Reserve, they're going to have to pause. You know, great. Joe, can I? Yeah, uh, you could take that, but also uh, somebody emails me with a comment that I want your reaction to as well uh, that says, all we've done is retrace to the pre-COVID highs. What if the real selling hasn't even started? That, that's the kind of issue you get into if things start to look um, like they're going to worsen. That's really pertinent to what you were discussing with Jim, Scott. Jim's supposition was that you can't have a retracement of 40 or 50 percent without duress in the financial uh, system. But what if your 40 or 50 percent retrenchment was off of valuations that didn't make any sense to begin with? That's where you can have that type of retrenchment without having duress in the financial system. So I agree with that comment. And you know, I love Joe. Joe, here's my retort to that. The look, I agreed with you four or five weeks ago about the incremental buyer in the Treasury market. And what we've seen in terms of the selling has been South Korea, Japan, and others supporting their currency. But the domino effect of that, and, and remember, that's driven somewhat by their policy decision to keep rates preternaturally low right. while the rest of the world is raising, is that they risk capital flight. And so while they have really low yields and their wealth, their private wealth in the country says, well, I can get a 4% return on six-month treasuries. I'm going to go out and buy dollars. That's the incremental buyer. And and that is one of the reasons why they need to stop intervening in their currencies and join the rest of the world and raise rates and grit their teeth and bear through it. Right. Jim, so Farmer Jim, I'll I'll let you um, respond too. Uh, if you want, I think, you know, part of yeah. my point and, and Greg's as well is you don't need an end of the world scenario or the worries about it for uh, the stock market to go down another 20 percent. We're just in a period of normalization. The stock market went way up on a period of abnormalization where money was free for presumably ever. Most people yeah. haven't even seen a, a downturn of, of magnitude who are now coming to grips, Jim, with the fact that we're just normalizing policy. And thus, valuations are normalizing, earnings may normalize, and stock prices may normalize. So I think there's a lot of validity to what you and Greg just said. But let me, let me express how I'm showing that in my portfolio. 
Um, I trimmed Apple well below market weight last week. I'm, I'm at half the level of Apple. I sold NVIDIA 60 points ago. All right. I think there are valuations that still have to come down to normalize, to Greg's point. But the problem is, is when we look at the market overall, it's still inflated by tech and consumer discretionary, at least, you know, the Teslas of the world and communication services, at least the Googles of the world. Those excesses still have to come out. I will agree with you. Outside of those sectors, I will tell you that, that markets have normalized and that for them to get materially worse outside of those sectors, I do believe, can't prove it, this is the future, I do believe you have to have financial system distress to occur. But to the point about normalization, I'm 100% on board. By the way, just taking the 10-year to 4% or the Fed funds rate to you know three, three and a quarter right now, that's actually just getting back to historical norms. These are not levels. You think about the late 90s and how good the economy and the stock market was. The 10-year averaged 5.5%. Right. And the average multiple on the market was 18. Because so it's not the level. It's not the level. It's the speed of going from zero to 4%. It's the speed I'll, of I'll which agree. that causes a normalization in things that have been priced abnormally through this entire period, right? We yes, 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 Scott. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're running out of time. Yes, totally agree. By the way, we're a lot closer to the end than to the beginning. I know where the peak, uh, you know, summary of economic projections level is. I see where the Fed funds futures peaks is right now. It's 4.3%. We're 100 basis points away. We're already 300 basis points in that direction. I totally agree with you. I'm just saying the next two months you get through these, things could look a lot better. Okay. Greg Branch, I'm going to let you go. Um, you want to give me a quick last thought, and then I'm going to get some final trades from my peeps. But give me a quickie. A quickie. Uh, so at the end of the day, I just don't want to be ahead of it. And, and Jim hinted at this. Yes, there might be a pivot three months from now, four months from now, five months from now. But we got QT. We got earnings revisions that need to come down in, Q, in Q4 and 2023. Uh, we got a deteriorating consumer uh, and two more interest rate hikes probably this year. And so when you get a risk-free return on a six-month bill of 4%, and I think Joe would agree with this, we've talked about this online, I think you're going to see a lot of money flows out of equities into high investment grade credit and into treasuries. All right. We will talk to you soon, Gregory Brantz. Thank you, uh, as always. Let's do some final trades. All right. Um, Bryn, why don't you start us off first? Perfect. Um, I'm going to talk about GM. If you own GM like I do, it's a down today on an analyst downgrade. Mm -hmm. You can sell the January 35 calls and collect $2.50. So in around four months, that's a little bit, that's a little bit over an 8% yield while you, wait for, while you wait for it to come back. Okay. Uh, Jim, I'll go to you. Naturally, I mean, you own GM too. I don't have much time. I don't have time to get into the downgrade or yeah. your support of it, but what's your that's final? Okay. Uh, dear, I, I think there's no question with the war going on that plant things are going to be very important for the next several years. All right, Jason Snipe. I like AutoZone here. Commercial growth is here. I, I like AutoZone. Continues to grow. All right. And uh, finally, Joey, what do you got? Freeport McMurrin. It's a play on Dollar Peak. That's your, uh, I guess, your most recent purchase, yes. if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, thank you. I'll see you in overtime. Dan Greenhouse, Stephanie Link, Sean Cruz. Our MVP segment is back as well. A big call today on a drug stock. I'll see you then. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.